poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is the winner of the 2015 10K WSOP horse event, the brilliant Andrew Barber. If there's one way to sum up Andrew Barber, it's this. The man is a stud. In life, there's one trait I value in humans above all others, And that is the ability to admit when their previous opinion, no matter how strongly believed, is wrong. This changing of opinion may stem from new information or a revelation that it was rooted in some kind of cognitive bias. But whatever the case may be, they have enough courage to simply say, you know what, you're right, and now I'm going to look at this a little differently. When you approach poker and life from this paradigm You're able to expedite your evolution as a human being and avoid unnecessary suffering in a way I can't overstate. I have many regrets in life, but not understanding this lesson earlier is one of my biggest, and this is an area, as you're about to find out, where Andrew Barber thrives. Andrew's also a former engineer, economist, and follower of Stoic philosophy who spends most of his life force these days in academia. In today's conversation with Andrew Barber, you're going to learn how infusing altruism with his poker career completely changed Andrew's perspective on being a professional card player, why it was very clear to Andrew that engineering was not going to be his path in life, a greatness bomb in the form of a question that will save you untold hours of frustration when discussing emotional topics with your friends and family, and much, much more. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you WSOP bracelet winner and one of the highest level thinkers I know, Andrew Barber. Andrew, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. Like I mentioned in our brief pre-interview conversation, I have a tiny cat asleep in my lap, so... Any meows or purrs that anybody hears in the audio, that's where that's coming from. Typically, starting this show out, we dive deep into your journey through poker. So to kind of set the stage, how old are you currently? So that we can set the timeline, and then let's talk about your journey through cards. Sure. Uh, I am 38 uh, which feels weird to say because like that's so old for poker, <laughs> but I guess a lot of people I came up with are in a similar place. Yeah. Um, but the yeah, legends remember... of the game are like Phil Galfond. He's like 35 or something like jungle man yeah. just turned 30, like a year ago. Like what the hell? <laughs> yeah. I've got like a few friends that are like going to be eligible for the seniors in a few years. And I think the seniors is not going to be a soft event in like five years. <laughs> yeah. Give it, give it like 12 years or so. And the seniors, Oh, trouble for the seniors event. 
Yeah. So let's talk about your your journey through poker. That was where we sure. we started this question. Yeah, yeah, at. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so it's been an interesting one. If I go all the way back to like the first time I played poker, I was in college during like the party poker boom, um, which was just ages and ages ago. Um, that would be around like. <laughs> we're the same age, age by the way. So it's, <laughs> we're yes. the same age. So I feel, yeah. I feel your pain here. Um, yeah. So like, so like 2003, 2004, I was in college 2001 to 2006. And um, it was crazy. I mean, like I'm on a college campus right now and poker is just not what it was then. You know, it was every, every white male was playing poker in some way, shape, or form. They were playing in the dorms, in the frats, online. Uh, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't trip and fall and not land in a poker game somewhere on on campus. Um, and you know, playing with friends, I was lucky enough. So I went to to Cornell, and I would say that for whatever reason, I think the Ivy League produced like a bunch of poker players this time. Um, and I was lucky enough to find some people who were active on two plus two in the early days and that was huge for me because getting connected with like people who were studying the game at a higher level um, and were kind of on the um the frontier yeah was was really great and who was in your uh, crew so, back then i know like um, Van vanessa vanessa was up there for sure she was at yale yeah um i believe haxton was at brown um, and then at Cornell, it was uh, Brian Hastings, uh, me, um, a guy named Jonathan Tamayo, uh, who is, I would say, like, somewhat unknown, but maybe like a lot of the OGs know him, driver's seat eye, and a few other people that have kind of gotten out of the game, um, but, but, but were pros for a number of years. And so I kind of got into that, and I found my way into the single table tournament forum, um, sit and go forum. Uh, which is where, I mean, a ridiculous number of people got their start. It's where Jonathan Little got started. It's where Phil Galfon got started. It's where Durr got started. Uh, um, I mean, just so many people. Uh, Bonomo. Got their start in the, I mean. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, of course. Yes, yeah. yeah. Z Justin. Yeah, like um, I, I played probably $1,200 against Z Justin back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wear goggles. I remember he was like... Uh, he was someone who I saw kind of climbing the ranks. And I remember like he bought like a, it was like a Mustang or something cash uh, when I was like 22. And I was like, oh, my God, this is balling. Like, this is a guy <laughs> who can just buy a car with cash. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the ROIs were ridiculous. If I recall, there was some sticky in that forum that said that like people were sustainably earning like eight, nine percent ROIs in the party 215s, which is absurd. I mean, I was making like five or 6% in like the full tilt 33s. And I thought I was crushing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just crazy what the win rates were back then. Um, so I got into sit and goes and really tried to uh, learn the math uh, of those. Now, like the pro was that I realized how important having a mathematical foundation was. The con was that I never learned how to play a flop. <laughs> Uh, you just you memorize push fold stuff um, and you just multi table as many tables as you could possibly handle. Mm -hmm. um, and so like that, that sustained me for 
for a little while. I shouldn't say sustained me. I, I played sit and goes for a little while and I was lucky enough to only dive into poker towards the end of my college career. If I had found it earlier or had gotten serious earlier, I don't know if I would have finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, I barely finished as is. <laughs> uh, so, so I graduated in 2006. I went home. One I was sec. playing. Oh, go what, ahead. What was it about poker that, you know, pulled you in, captured your interest and that you loved? Um, I mean, I really enjoyed the social aspect because I met interesting people. Like it was, it was, I was exposed to, you had kind of had this organic mixing of people. Like I would go to a game in a dorm room or I would go to uh, Turning Stone, which was like the, the local casino that was open to 18 plus uh, at the time. And I would just go with different people all the time uh, or I'd play with different people all the time. Um, but I, I think that I, like so many players, I liked the idea of learning a game, solving it as fast as possible and beating it. Yeah. Um, and I would say that this is true <laughs> of like all games and sports that I've played. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm in the middle of, of kind of going down the rabbit hole with golf lately. And oh I am like dead set on breaking 80 as fast as possible. Yeah. You, you certainly choose the easy games. Just, you just pick you just pick up a club and you just swing and yeah. you win right uh, you sit down at the poker table you you know all the things right yeah, um yeah. i do think it's interesting like early on in my career i guess the poker world was kind of small like there were a lot of people playing but i think that um i don't know like somehow i stumbled across vanessa we were, we played like four-handed on party poker i think it was like 1k and l back then and mm-hmm. as these things go, you just start like chatting, you know, like in the type box, mm-hmm. you're just like chatting and, oh, what's your AOL and messenger? And then like, oh, we friend each other on AIM and like you chat. And um, yeah, it wasn't like rare for people to get together and for people to fly across the country and hang out and just meet other poker players. And like the level of connectivity was like really cool and really fun and really exciting, right? Like, you know, I remember when I went and spent time with Vanessa, like, she was like, Hey, I'm going to be in town. Like in two days, you want to come hang out? And I'm like, yeah, I don't got shit to do. I'm 21. <laughs> like you just buy a plane ticket, get in a car and you're on an adventure. Like, and that was just for me, very, very exciting as a, you know, 21 year old human being. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I remember, I, I think one of the early, I guess he wasn't famous at the time, but one of the early people that I chatted with was Sam Greenwood. Um, before like he got into high rollers, he was a mm-hmm. sit go player. Um, he and his brother brothers, I think there's three Greenwood brothers anyway. Um, yeah, so, so we chatted, um, and yeah, the poker world was a lot smaller. And I think to your point, there weren't like these, it wasn't a hierarchy. There weren't like these different yeah. statuses. Like you were like, you know, the people that were crushing were just like you they just maybe had gotten started six months earlier or something and like that it's crazy how that that's that delta you know starting six months or a year earlier had such a huge like profound impact i mean jonathan little you know ran super hot and was able to take like all these shots at wpts because he had just started like a year or two before us right and and i mean back then that's a big deal. Like it's a, it was a really big deal. And also the tournaments that you win were a really big deal because like, you know, Antonio won a WPT event, like, and Gus, like at the exact right time in the boom that made it to where like, they don't have to worry about things really 
forever just because they became celebrities at the perfect time that affected like, you know, they could just have taken $0 in prize money. And I'm sure that those tournament victories have paid for themselves like, you know, 50 times over throughout the last 20 years. Totally. I mean, we can get to this later, but like, I am a big believer in shot taking in tournaments simply because there is like this added equity that's not related to the prize pool. It's like the opportunities, um, the, the credit you get. Um, it, it's not deserved, deserved or yeah. <laughs> undeserved. Yeah, no, it's not deserved at all. I mean, uh, it's, it's, I mean, tournaments are lotteries. Um, you know, you, you hope you Tell get that lucky. to Ali Msurovich. That kid. <laughs> I think they become less lottery like uh as you as you climb the high rollers, but no, he's he and um Sean Perry are doing really crazy things that don't make sense. Like they shouldn't be able to beat the guys they're beating as consistently as they do. Yeah, see that's that that's how it works, right? Like somebody's doing some crazy things that doesn't really make sense, and then like five or five years down the line, it's like we just gain visibility of like exactly what's going on there, I think. Like Durr yeah, yeah. in cash games, for instance, was like, what the fuck is this guy doing? But like, he's just so ahead of everybody that like, we can't see what he's doing. Yeah, no, this one, this one doesn't make sense to me in particular, because like, if we learned anything from the, um, the AI human challenge, where um, I forget the two Labratus, I think that was the Pluribus, first one. But Pluribus and Labratus. I think Pluribus was the first one, and then Labratus was the second one. Um, but humans are basically employing the strategies now that the AI killed us with um, in in the last round, like the the, the use of overbetting uh, mm-hmm. frequently. Um, so yeah, I'm I mean I'm curious. I I will never play one of these high rollers. I have no desire to whatsoever. Um, but it just does not make sense to me how, like I don't know who's firing them, you know, routinely, but just how the people the best players in the world are, you know, routinely coming up short against Ali and, and Sean. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I think yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. Like I, I think these anomalies are just always fascinating and cool in poker just because it's like, you know, I, I had a uh, Patrick Leonard on um, a few mm-hmm. weeks back and we were talking about MTT and like variants and all these things. And like, Basically, I just asked him about like his career and he, he, he sort of like a little bit sheepishly was like, he hadn't had a losing month in 10 years, like playing MTTs on an everyday basis or very, very regular basis. And it's like, that shouldn't really happen from what I know about MTTs, but I guess I'm a cash game person, so I don't know a ton. I just thought that that's not a thing that happens. Like, Tell me, explain this to me. I think you're, I think you're correct, but I do think that you can make some deviations to, um, so like I, I'm kind of in the same boat with cash. Like I haven't had uh, a losing month in, it's, it's a large number of years. I'm not sure how many (laughs) years back. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, but that's not an accident. It's because like I choose games that are extremely beatable. Um, cash, cash just seems different. You know, of course, it's different, but yeah, in tournaments, I think that the same idea applies that you can game select uh, and reg stuff that where you your ROI is going to be higher, or you can employ a strategy that's like lower variance. Like I haven't seen a lot of pads play, mm-hmm. um, but I do wonder if he like if he's indifferent between two lines, he'll choose the lower variance line. Yeah, or he'll sacrifice some EV for a reduction in variance. 
but yeah, no, that is shocking. Like to go, <laughs> I mean, that just that doesn't even make sense considering there's so many crushers that will like, you know, brick entire scoops or W coops and that's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's, that's mind boggling. I wonder if he's factoring in his, his stable as well, or if he's separating I, the two. I don't I know think stable so, crushes. but yeah, that would be kind of a cop out. I think factoring in your, your yeah, stable yeah, to yeah, your, yeah. your own results. Um, sure. I, and like, you know, in cash games, I know that I went through like a four or five year stretch where I had like one losing month and like maybe a break even month. Right. And I just like cash games. I think it, it makes more sense tournaments from what I understand about tournaments. I'm like, what the hell that does my mind can't even really comprehend that. Totally. No, I, I, I mean, uh, so I, I might be butchering this and it's been shared with me who heard it from someone else. So like it might be a game of telephone. (laughs) Yeah. But the way that I heard this story, I was like, I bricked my first, like, I think like 15 World Series events, and I was starting to get in my head about it. And then someone told me that Mike Watson, during some stretch, allegedly went like zero for 52 at the World <laughs> Series. Yeah, Sir so Watts, Watts, another like, another yeah. party poker guy. Total total crusher. I mean, and, and is one of those people that's like stood the test of time. He's probably mm-hmm. been like, you know, one of the, I don't know, 20 or 30 best tournament players for like 15 years or something ridiculous like that. Yes. Yeah, um, absurd. So, so yeah, there's tons of variance in, in, in tournaments and uh, yeah, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how uh, Patrick is doing it. Yeah. My uh, friend of mine, Jesse Yaganuma, we always joke, he's played the WSOP, like the, the main event every year for the past, like 16 years. And I guess last year, multiple times, I don't even know how many main events there were last year. Um, <laughs> he's never cashed. Like he, he's never cashed in the main event, not one time out of like 16 go arounds. And I'm pretty sure he made like day three, four years in a row. He's like, hands down, I've put in more hours at the main event and not cashed than anybody else on the planet. Yeah, like yeah, he no, did. he's got, he's got, I'm, I'm content giving him the record. I, I would also argue with a high degree of confidence that he's doing something wrong. Like <laughs> well, I think that that's he very has possible to be, too. He has to have a min cash in there that he's just passing up on because he's playing for the win or something, or he's playing to make day nine. Yeah. Well, uh, he, he's, he's going to come back on the show. I'll ask him about that. Actually. I'll, I mean, what I'm the, just what so, the hell's I, wrong with you? I think like a good, like an, honestly, I think an ITM rate for a good player in the main should be like North of 25% or 30% or something. Yeah. Um, especially when they're paying 15%. Now, granted, a lot of those years he played it, they were paying 10%. Um, but it's hard to brick, go 0 for 16 if you if you have like an ITM rate of like, we'll say conservatively 20%. Yeah, maybe he's just doing it now to keep the streak alive. He just got to keep <laughs> that streak going. He could be in his head going. about it. He could be, I mean, like there's, po- poker players, I think have an underappreciation, although this is becoming less so, of the psychology in this game and like how much of a struggle it is to play your a game at all the like all the time for sure and i've so i I coach mostly cash game guys but um one person that i coach for a while played mtts and the thing that was happening with him and mtts was like he would get deep and then he would be like an out of body experience like i I didn't even know like why i did what i did but then i just like punted my stack away and i'm just like this happens so frequently and so often that like if you're just around and have a high level of awareness and you're disciplined, like as a good MTT player, 
somebody's got to be the beneficiary beneficiary of all these punts, right? Like it's just maintaining um, maintaining composure in those super high pressure moments where people just melt down. Yeah, I mean, I I think I've heard so many people say this over the years, but like I think MTC success is basically just waiting around long enough for someone else to make a mistake and not being the first one to make that mistake. Yeah, and yeah deep in the main. So I think I've I've made. I think I made day four three times and it's amazing watching someone blow up and because it happens so often and it's like predictable you don't know who it's going to be but you know someone's going to lose it because they've played for 35 straight hours uh or not straight but you know what I mean uh, they've sure. played for 35 hours and sleep, they just sleep like shit I'm sure yes yeah and and they they get tired of being messed with like I think like this is true of like older men, I think, where they're just like, they're tired of getting three bet or they're tired of just getting punished over and over again. And they just snap and they just snap in the spot where they shouldn't. Yeah. Like they choose the exact right, wrong hand to go with. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because it also happens in cash and I've talked about it on the show before, but like there are sometimes in cash where like I'm playing live cash. I just get this feeling that this dude is about to just go off. It's like, energy level changes, posture changes, their motions change. They haven't done anything out of character all day long, but then they get in this spot and I'm just like, oh, they're about to just punt. And then like they just punt and it's like, that's, it's really weird how my punt de radar detector can be on in those spots. But like, I think that sometimes the pressure just gets to people and they just like maybe subconsciously self-sabotage and it's just like, okay, get me out of this, this thing that's causing me so much pain. It's, it's a yeah. really weird phenomenon in poker. Yeah. I think this is why live poker and tournament poker are always going to be fine. Uh, just because humans have limits, you know, in the same way that, um, in athletics, like people choke, you know, professional athletes choke, sure. um, or get the yips or something like that. I, I think that, it's reasonable that a bunch of amateur poker players getting together to play for lots of money won't, you know, will make yeah. many more mistakes. Yeah. Looking at the first prize of like $9 million, your pro high likelihood chance that the pressure is going to get to you. I mean, it, it gets totally. to even like the elites of the elites, right? Totally. I mean, I had, I had a final table at the, in the Colossus uh, a couple years ago and I went through so many emotions that were not necessarily, uh, you know, useful or beneficial. Um, but one was me constantly focusing on the fact that like, this was a, not a once in a lifetime opportunity, but like once in a 10 lifetime opportunity, <laughs> since it's the fucking Colossus. Yeah. Um, and I just, I ran so terribly bad and I kept obsessing about that. And I know that like, it started to take an effect on me. And then I had like, you know, I really only had like one hand that I could, could play and I think I butchered it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think that there's, you can't overstate the importance of it. And a book that I always go back to is elements of poker, Tommy Angelo's book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I, it might be the book that I've read the most. Um, and I'm due for another reading of it, you know, before the series, I try to always read it before the series and I just read it periodically. If, you know, I'm, I'm bored and I'm looking for something to read. Yeah. It, it's almost like when I was a kid, you know, I had rollerblades, which by the way are out. Um, I don't, I don't know if the listener knows this, but I went to my daughter's, uh, took my, 
oldest daughter to one of her friend's birthday party at a roller rink. Blades, not a thing anymore. Nobody uses them. Like you're, you're the weirdo if you ask for rollerblades. But anyway, like would rollerblade down a hill of my house and without fail, if you're going fast, right, and you're having fun, if you think a thought that is, I hope I don't fall. And like you, as soon as you think that, you're done. You are face down right. on the ground. Like, because it just gets to you. You focus on like trying to not fall. And then all of a sudden, you just fall down. And, and like the same sort of concept just happens in poker in these high pressure spots where it's like, there's a lot on the line. Um, don't fall. Don't mess it up. Oh, what the hell? Like, <laughs> then you're standing, yeah. walking away from the table, scratching your head, like, fuck, I fucked up a once in 10 lifetime opportunity. Yeah. Totally. Um, I, I was going to say that, uh, it isn't, isn't it interesting in poker how we often know exactly how other people should play hands while they're going on. But then when we're in the situation, we're like completely fall apart. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, a good example is like, uh, you see river action, like someone bets and the other person's contemplating a call and like they call and they're shown the nuts and everyone's like, Oh yeah. Like we all knew that he had the nuts except for you. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that seems to be the case. Like something about being, outside of the situation gives you like a, a neutral objective perspective. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's something. I think it's emotions. Like I think when you're outside of it, you're not feeling any emotions that are going on right. and you're not influenced and you're less biased. Yeah. You're more objective. And that just, the emotions of poker are very high. And I think that like lots of people don't really think about gaining an awareness of their emotions and how they may be influenced by their emotions. I've, talked about it before on the show, but there's a book called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. And there he talks about like a chess master who basically meditates before, you know, a big tournament every day and and like basically wants to get in his own head and his own body and realize like, do I feel aggressive today? Do I feel passive today? Like what's my energy like? And then that's the style that he goes out and deploys because he knows that like basically inherently how he feels that day will affect strategy. So let's figure out what it is so that, you know, we can lean into that and utilize that. It's just can't be, can't be overstated in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that book. I think any, anyone who achieves mastery in two separate domains that like should not be connected at all. Um, I think is really impressive and should be paid attention to. Yeah. Um, that guy, that guy, he's very <laughs> Im impressive dude. I think for the listener, check out art of learning. It's, it's really an awesome book. He's the basis for the movie searching for Bobby Fisher is Josh Waitzkin. Let's go back to your journey. We got, I don't know where I took us, but we yeah, went yeah, all sure, off track. Sure. <laughs> um, okay. So let's see. I graduate college. I go back home to Springfield, Illinois, and I tell my parents that I'm kind of burned out from college. And I'm not in a hurry to get a job. And they're like, that's fine. Uh, you know, whatever you want to do. What'd you uh, we're, we're get your degree uh, in? Uh, civil and mechanical engineering. Oh, cool. Okay. And so I go, I go home and I'm playing, uh, continuing to play sit and goes online. And I get into like um, the cash game scene. There's like poker's not legal in Illinois at this point. So I'm playing in like these underground games. Um, As you do. Yes. Yes. Um, which is just a crazy, I mean, poker provides you, especially if you're in the game long enough, provides you with lots of crazy stories and like being robbed at gunpoint multiple times is, uh, is on that list of, of crazy stories. Tell me, so I'm, tell me, I want to hear the story. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, they're, they're not that interesting, but like, <laughs> it's just a fact that private games are going to private games without high level security. Like all these places have cameras and locked doors and you have to be buzzed in. Um, but that is not enough to, you know, deter someone who's trying to get some money. Um, but yeah, on two occasions, two separate rooms, um, the game was robbed and thankfully both times they just took like the money that was um like the house had they didn't like grab the, they missed the money that people had in their pockets which was much more than what was on the table yeah, not poker players uh, that yes, <laughs> robbed exactly. the place <laughs> exactly exactly opportunists um mm-hmm. so anyway so i was i was mixing like live and online play and then um finally they say you know what it's time for you to get a job and so I, you know, applied for some jobs and got a job as an engineer out in California, uh, in the Sacramento area. So I moved out to Sacramento in 2007 and held down a job for all of five months. And then I was either laid off or fired, depending on whether you want to be generous or not. Um, <laughs> I say that it was timed with the recession, so I was laid off, but mm-hmm. I was not a great employee, so I could have been fired. Um, why weren't and you a so, great employee? You know, it's tough. Like when you are, first of all, when you're just a poker player and you're now having to go to a, like a nine to five job, that's weird. Also, the kind of person that really enjoys poker, I think, abhors, I was actually just discussing this today, or I think in the last couple of days on Twitter, um, abhors uh, being told what to do. They, they want autonomy. And I was not in that kind of work environment. I had a boss and I had these projects and timelines and deadlines. I like that you anyway, described so I, it as weird. That's very soft language for you fucking hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was not good. So, uh, so anyway, so I, I, you know, I tell my, my family that, you know, I've lost this job and they're like upset beside themselves. And what are you going to do? And I kind of thought about it for a little while and I was, you know what, I'm going to give this poker thing a try. Um, and Thankfully, in 2008, Northern California is like poker mecca, card rooms everywhere. Um, you know, there. I would say that that it seemed to be recession proof. Like there was enough money. You know, I think in Silicon Valley and then just like the larger Greater Bay Area. And so I was, and I and I was also playing small too at the time. I was, you know, I took my, I got the severance check, and that was my bankroll. Um. And so I started grinding like crazy small games. I was playing like four, eight limit hold'em and one, two, no limit uh, for a couple months, just trying to pay my bills. I, th- um, I think those games just might be like future past proof, recession proof. Yeah, <laughs> those games yeah, totally. are, on the last totally. day that humans are on the earth. The one, two game is going to be fucking great at whatever casino <laughs> it's being spread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, I, I might've been in like one of the best, if not the best four, eight, hold'em game in the country i like developed this like perfect algorithmic strategy for how to play these rulers <laughs> and i was beating it for just something ridiculous like like a good win rate in limit hold'em is like two bets an hour and i was smashing that i was like making like three or four bets an hour every day and i was trying to maximize as many hours because when you're starting out and i think everyone comes to this realization at some point when you're starting out as a poker player, there's two things you need to do. One, you need to minimize your expenses, especially if you're starting from like broke or close to broke and you have a small role. Minimize your expenses. I was living on less than $1,000 a month for a year. In the Bay Area. 
yeah it, i mean this was this was 2008 so like it's not what it is now um but like i as soon as i lost my job i moved from my apartment that i had to myself and i rented a room from a dealer at a local card room and so my rent went from like 1600 a month to 500 a month uh and then i was like trying to eat like comped meals at casinos all the time and you know eating subway five dollar footlongs i mean i was a huge knit i've always been a knit but like i was <laughs> peak knit right then yeah uh, so get your expenses down and then just grind your face off so between like 2008 and 2011 i played 50 hours a week no exceptions yeah um and that's and I, you just have to do that you have to and i think that like live players like i'm so i'm like a high intensity online player that can't play super long but man like in a live game it's like what's the excuse of not being able to put in 40 hours at like live poker cash game like you should just be able to do that i think most people if this is their pursuit that's just like easy mode like i was living at commerce playing 60 hours a week and like taking sundays off and like maybe it wasn't like fun i mean <laughs> it wasn't always no, fun st sticking to that but like it's a doable thing and sustainable totally totally i mean like where it's always going to be easier than someone who has a job where they have to sit in an office for eight hours straight or God forbid stand for eight hours straight. I mean, like poker so fucking easy and we complain about it and we shouldn't. Um, it's a luxury. And I never forgot that. Um, so anyway, so I was, I was playing a bunch and I'm, I met a friend who was playing online and Oh, I left out an important detail. So I lost my online role um, during the NetTeller um, shit, in which is ages ago. But uh, UIGEA, uh, or no, was it UIGEA? Yeah, it was UIGEA. I think 2006 when. Yeah, yes. Yes, like, that's the time. That's you the used time. to cash out from Party Poker directly to NetTeller, and I had like the NetTeller little debit card in my wallet. Yep. Yep. So I cashed out to NetTeller, and it got stuck there, and the money was there for two years something like that um and so i was like kind of gun shy and i hadn't played online poker since before i left for california so i had a friend you know we're, we're chatting he goes oh you should um you should play online poker like uh i think you'd be really good at uh these full tilt like 45 and 90 mans uh, and i was like okay sure and, and he goes i'll i'll stake you for them and you know i'm never been backed before he's never staked before we have no idea what this is supposed to look like and i think he's worried about like me running on him so he sends me one buy-in <laughs> he doesn't send me a roll he sends me one buy-in uh i reg the next 90 man i ship it i we chop up the profits and the stake ends after one tournament and i just took i just played on the you know the profits from that uh, and then a, a few months after that, I won full tilt, had a, a tournament that I think ran nightly called the 50, 50, it was a $50, 50 K guarantee. I won that for like 10 or 11 K. And that gave me like, uh, some wiggle room. I, you know, I moved out of the house that I was renting a room from, uh, I started traveling around playing live stuff in California and Reno, uh, Reno was the of the only place to play live tournaments before you know you have the culture today where you can play a tournament um almost any day of the week uh in almost any state um quite easily so like if you were in the california nevada area the only place to play tournaments outside of the world series was reno and they knew it and they had series all the time 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So they had like, um, there was the Grand Sierra and Pepper Mill and they would like alternate and they would have like maybe five, six series a year. And I spent a ridiculous amount of time in Reno playing those tournaments. And it was actually playing in those tournaments where I got exposed to mixed games and I fell in love with mixed games. Um, and I met like this core group of friends, you know, that were kind of some of the, um, the early crushers um, in mixed games and like the early, you know, mid 2000s. Uh, so yeah, so I got exposed to those. Um, and then I came back home and I was continuing my online grind and I was playing sit and goes and MTTs and I kind of was searching for something else. Uh, and I would say that it was actually motivated a lot by variance. I didn't like the swings uh, of, of MTTs and sit and goes. And this, this was at a time where like games were getting tougher. So ROIs were plummeting as ROIs plummet, variance goes up. And I was like, I need something more stable. Uh, obviously that's very difficult with, with poker, um, but, but the realization you, you eventually come to, which I think a realization every poker player has is like cash is going to be better for my sanity than tournaments. Uh, if I care about the swings at all. And so I started playing cash, but I had gotten into um, Omaha high low through my experience with, with going to Reno for mixed games and stuff. And I just like fired up like a small stakes, six handed Omaha high low table. And it just clicked. It just clicked the way that I've heard other poker players talk about specific formats where they just, they just get it. And I just seemed to get it. And I, I went from, I think it was 50 cent a dollar to 75, 150 on stars within nine months, something like that. Solely, um, solely playing Omaha high low. Solely playing Omaha high low, still dabbling in like, um, sit and go stuff and some MTTs, but like I became obsessed with the game. I like, I had a poker journal. I was always thinking about the game. I was talking to other people about it. I mean, like some of my best poker friends are people that I that I kind of met around this time or talked to Omaha High Low with. Why do you think uh, so, it clicked so much? And, and I'll, uh, a follow-up question down the line is also, why did mixed games resonate with you so much? Well, I don't know if everyone's experienced this, but I kind of got bored with the simplicity of Hold'em. I mean, I respect that like it is uh a game that can be um extremely deep um and that you can run sim after sim after sim in different spots um but i think ultimately i didn't like the lack of complexity in strategies um and with mixed games you have like you know constant variation like like I love playing in a multi-game mix where like the game is just changing like every orbit. So it's like, okay, let's shift to something new. I think maybe I get bored or I like shifting gears and thinking in a different way. Um, but Omaha high low, I mean, what I like about it is I love split pot games, first of all. So like if I were to rank the, my favorite games, split pot games are going to be at the top of the list. I love the idea that we're like playing two games simultaneously. Like that's really cool to me. Um, you know, it's, uh, so there's that, I think there's this, um, maybe a concept that, that came naturally to me that maybe others struggle with is kind of seeing where my hand is on a spectrum, like, uh, the weaker your low hand is the, sorry, I'm making an assumption here. 
Are you relatively familiar with Omaha High Low? I know the rules of how the okay. game operates. Okay, <laughs> got it. Okay, so there's uh, there's these trade offs that like the worse your low hand is, the better your high hand has to be, and vice versa. And I just seem to like understand where my hand fell on that that distribution. Um, you it's not often that you have like the nuts and the high side and the nuts and the low side, and especially as you're playing shorter handed or heads up, uh, you're often going to have like trash on both ends. Sure. And it's kind of like trying to understand how does my trash measure up to my opponent's trash? Yeah. Um, and what's that might like my optimal strategy here. Uh, so yeah, I really, I took to that. And then I think the game was also like, uh, poised for a, um, poised for evolution. Like it was a very, people were still playing a very primitive uh, elementary strategy. There was like, I would say it was a little more nut peddly back then. Mm -hmm. And I was able to take advantage of that, but I think I just saw, uh, there's maybe an, a Hold'em analog that could be made here. I, do you remember when people like didn't defend the big blind very much? Yeah. Like the, the big blind defense rates were crazy low for the longest time. And then someone's like, actually we should be defending like a shit ton and we should just play a flop. Right. And then um, three bets, like nobody defended against three bets for like yeah, totally. two or yeah, three you, years. So like yeah. folding 80% to a three bet, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like I remember when like the crushers were like, I'm just going to call a lot. And they're like, <laughs> and that just that just worked really, really well. Yeah. Um, in Omaha High Low, I just realized that equities ran so close together that I should just be playing a bunch more hands than my opponents. Yeah. And I think at one point in time, like six-handed, I was playing almost 50% of hands, which is absurd and and probably not optimal i mean i was experimenting mm -hmm. um and i think hold'em players do this like they they um most players i've known have like gone back and forth between playing too tight and too loose and you kind of just go back and forth and you hopefully like like a harmonic series you kind of dial in on the correct the yeah. correct v-pip uh so yeah so i was there was the confluence of a bunch of things like i felt like i was i was my brain was wired for the game the game was particularly soft then i felt like i could kind of disrupt it with like my different strategy i had success online and then around this time black friday happened um i went to, to the world series and i started playing the 75 game there and i had a ton of success there and then that led to me having kind of financial freedom which just opens a lot of doors in terms of you know what games you want to play in um how much you want to take yourself because I, I mean i was in 2010 I remember I can find old two plus two posts, but I was like selling action in like $300 tournaments. Yeah. Uh, which, which is absurd in hindsight. And I don't think that was optimal because I was a huge bankroll net. Mm -hmm. And one major way I've updated my thinking on this is I think people need to be like extremely aggressive. And I think Kelly criterion is, is over applied. All right. So let's break down Kelly criterion and why you think players ought to be more aggressive. Yeah, so Kelly Criterion is basically this algorithm that says based on your uh, your edge in a bet or edge in a tournament, um, what fraction of your bankroll you should be wagering on it. Um, it's really popular amongst sports bettors, uh, where they believe they like they know their edge on a bet, like um, for for a given for a given line, and yeah, I mean. People come up with these absurd rules from this. So like, uh, I don't know, cash game players, I don't even know what the conventional wisdom is now, but like at one point, I think it was like, you need to have like 200, 250 buy-ins or something like that. I don't think I, that, 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 
I think people probably said that, but that just seems like crazy to me. No, I mean, I do, I do firmly believe that people are like saying one thing and doing something totally yeah. different. And that's another uh, thing I've learned through like affiliation with like high level poker players, like through the years, it's like, oh yeah, this is my advice to everybody else. And then this is what actually happens behind closed doors. The perception and the reality is just totally out of whack. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I don't think people are following those rules. Um, and I would say that I've changed my thinking on this for a variety of reasons. One is like anecdotally, it seems like all the people that have had success in poker ignore these rules. Like <laughs> yeah. dirt, dirt took shots. Galphon took shots. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and, you know, and then I think the other thing is like the, the risk reward is asymmetric. Like if you, if you bink, if you take a shot and you do well, you don't have to worry about this ever again. Yeah. But if it doesn't go well, if you're good, you will not struggle getting into the next game. Right. You, you'll either I mean, grind it up or you'll be able to find a backer. Um, yeah, like you, but, you strike out on like a 1K with like a 20K roll or a 30K roll or whatever. Like that's something that you can replace and it's not like the end of the world. You hit it for like 300 then all of a sudden like the game has changed because now yes. you have a lot more money. You're future earn rate goes way through the roof. It's just, it, it helps in so many different ways. Yeah. I mean, I've known people that have played back for a long time and it's something that like, it's really hard to get out of. Like you get stuck there. You're giving up so much of your profit. And so any chance to avoid that, um, I think should be, should be sought after. Um, but the, and then and that's like not even including like the non-monetary stuff. You know, you, you bink something, um, you're never going to have to worry about selling action. You're just going to sell out yeah. all the time. Um, you're going to have a reputation amongst your peers. Your, your opinions are going to matter more. It's just, you just, you level up in, in such a way that, that, I mean, I really, uh, appreciated. Um, I, I gotta that get was in always there. important to me. <laughs> I gotta get <laughs> in the MTT streets for like building my business and selling courses and stuff. It's like, totally. Oh, no, so, it's, so beneficial. Look at, to like, Little. look at Jonathan Little. He, he runs hot in the W. I don't want to take anything away from him. I think he's a brilliant businessman. He did very well, you know, on his first year in WPT and he has parlayed that success. And good, he good works very hard too. You know, he's written yes. like a billion books. He's constantly yes. churning out content con- and then, you know, I make content for poker coaching myself. It's like, yeah, again, right place, right time, ran hot when you needed to run hot. And I'm sure that he would be the first to say like, yeah, I ran very, very hot in a very good time to run hot. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, so I, that's, um, that's something where I have changed dramatically. Um, and I, you know, I put it into action. I would say I had this, maybe this realization, and maybe like 20, 2013, 2014, something like that, where I started taking a little bit more of myself. Um, Cause I was one of those guys that like, you know, didn't want to play a tournament unless I had sold 75, 80% or something, you know, where I was like, I don't want to say I was like trying to free roll. Cause I, I think I've always had a problem with that, but I was, I was getting close to it where I was, I had minimal risk. And then you come to, 2015, um, where I had a really good summer, uh, and, and won a bracelet. I was unsure about playing the, the tournament that I ended up winning the 10 K horse up until the, I think it was the day before 
and I ended up taking the largest piece I've ever had of myself in any tournament uh, for that tournament. That seems like a decision that went well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's not be too results oriented. That is like maybe the most important thing to, to take away from poker uh, is to not be too results oriented. Um, well, again, it's like right place, right time. Just yeah. made, made the right decision and it paid off in a massive way. And so that's just how things go. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. Um, how to feel? I was happy take, with scooping that one, the 10K horse, because that's like a pretty prestigious event. Yeah. I mean, no one should ever like be picky about which bracelet they win. But if you were such an asshole, um, if I were such an asshole, I, I think that this might, it would be like in my top three. Like, I think that I would love to win the 10K08, and I hate that I haven't had a, um, uh, like a, a good run in that. Um, I don't even know if I would care about the main that much. Like, the, just the, the cash would be great, but I don't know if I'd want to deal with, with all of the, the nonsense that comes with that. And then maybe the 50K. But yeah. I, I think aside from those, like, I'm pretty happy with the, the one that I was fortunate enough to. Yeah, it's funny. Almost verbatim, Chris Wallace said the same thing, and I'm pretty sure he won the same exact 10K horse event. Maybe. He won it the year before me. I I, <laughs> I room with him in the during the World Series. <laughs> yeah, he he said almost verbatim that same thing. If I could pick a tournament to win, which is funny, you two roommates, um, and then <laughs> both of you win it back to back years. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I roomed with him. So it was it was well after. So I think I, I roomed with him for the first time in 20. 2018 or 2019. Um, so it was after the fact, but like we kind of bonded over the fact that, you know, we, we had that, we were kind of like a couple of nobodies that, that, that won that tournament. Um, speaking but, you know, of, it was, Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, speaking of no, say, nobodies, I, uh, looked at your Hinden mob and it's like just this anonymous, there's no picture of you. It's like pretty freaking hilarious. Oh, that's funny. I hadn't, I haven't looked at it in a while, but <laughs> I, I thought there was something there. Um, there wasn't, it was like five winner of the 10 K horse. Like that was what I saw, but like, there's no picture or anything. It's just like your name and you know, how much ever you've won in lifetime MTTs. Oh, that's, that's funny. Um, it's something I don't care about like, uh, that much. I'm not someone who's like seeking fame per se. Like I, something I, I, I promised myself a long time ago that I would never use my, bracelet photo for like any social media stuff because it just seems like so um uh ubiquitous and uh um i don't know what they were like trite uh yeah, ubiquitous but, all you 10k horse bracelet winners <laughs> sharing your pictures everywhere <laughs> <laughs> no i mean because the thing the thing that i realized the thing that, that you and i both realize is like there's so much luck in tournaments and like sure. we should not derive, uh, you know, our self worth or identity from getting lucky in the lottery. I, I so here a thing that I've struggled with. So like, I, what's interesting is like I'm a cash game player who's like had no interest in MTTs my whole career. Like it just, I just haven't had much. In, I mean, maybe in the first four or five years, but since then, like not so much. And yeah, it's just even in the cash game streets, like I would play with people and they would like be taking pictures of their chip stack for like chip porn and like sharing it all over social media. And that's always felt like 
icky to me. Like I've never felt inclined to be like, oh, I'm just going to take a picture of my chip, chip sack and like show everybody like how much money I won when, you know, I could take a picture of my chip sack from yesterday and it was like nothing on the felt. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's always felt very weird to me, that sort of pursuit of prestige, which ironically makes a lot of sense considering my podcast is Chasing Poker Greatness. But um, it does it does strike me as uncomfortable just as a human. Now that I have like a business and I'm like actively trying to like market and grow, it's sort of different. But like if I were just on my own, I, I would nobody would ever know about me. Nobody would ever read about me. Nobody would ever hear about me. And that's just kind of how it would be. Yeah, I think that that's so there was a lot to unpack there. But I, I think that, first of all, like taking pictures is just like associated with being a fish. Like there's a high degree of correlation between um, between those things. Um, but it just goes to show that what a, how difficult it is to divorce yourself from the ego with with poker that I actually kind of I really liked your idea. Like, oh, I could have taken a picture yesterday when my chips were nothing. I would totally support you in an effort to like take pictures of like being felted and only having those pictures, never having pictures of stacks, but just yeah. like dust. I, I just got felted for the third time today. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always waited for like those WSOP winner interviews for somebody. Cause it's always like, I just played the best poker in my life. And I knew it. Like, I just, I, I'm waiting for the one that's like, I just played like shit. Like I got it in bad at every stage and made so many mistakes. And then I just won. I don't know how I did it, but here I am. Like, because you know that of course, obviously the variance is very high. There's a high, high level of luck that comes into taking one of those down. And yet all the people played the best poker they've ever played when it's like, yeah, we could just replace you with like just many other human beings. And they all would have won the same tournament, Adam for Adam, if the spots were swapped. Yeah. Yeah. It would be cool. If, I mean, like this, this, this is so impossible, but like if you could get a sense of uh, like chips, one above replacement, like the, <laughs> yeah. like the wins above replacement stats for, for, for sports, mm -hmm. like, Oh, let's give this person like bottom 10% distribution of cards and like see what he can do with them or see what she can do with them. And like, yeah, my, like my, my final table, the, the 10K final table, the cards played themselves. I ran like one bluff, which I think was like a great spot for a bluff, but largely just I ran hot and my opponents made mistakes. And, and even I that's lucky, that, right? Like, sure, sure. Getting totally, in a good spot totally. for to bluff. Like, even that's, yeah. that's, that there's a form of luck in that too. Yeah, I mean, even at that final table, it's crazy that I, and this seems to happen a lot with tournaments. And maybe it's like availability bias, where I just like, um, I I I see the tournaments that are maybe confirmation bias, but like I see tournaments that confirm this theory. But it's amazing how deep in tournaments, sometimes like all the good players will bust before the final table. So like I saw this with the main one year where it was like super stacked with a hundred people left, and then just like no one good made the final table, and my year with the 10k like it was super stacked with like 20 left and then like i got lucky in terms of who the people were that made the final table like i right. got a drunk i got a drunk scotty win like that's <laughs> just good that's just good luck mm -hmm. it's um, more more run good when you need it yeah rather than getting like a completely lucid you know david oppenheim or something like that <laughs> like uh yeah I, I ran good there but yeah that's that's tournaments and i definitely um, while I enjoy them and I think that they should be part of every poker player's like portfolio, uh, they're extremely luck based. And I don't think you should derive any, um, sort of identity or ego from having success in them. 
I see you, them as a speculative investment. And you mentioned something there that's a greatness bomb for me because you mentioned the wind above replacement. Uh, we wish we could have that stat. And sort of intuitively, I think that's how I've structured most of my decisions in cash games, even at like an early age of like 22 or 23, I just remember thinking like, oh, it's set over set, like whatever. Um, if this, if the spots reverse, like they're going broke to me and that'll eventually happen and found myself trying to make decisions that I thought other people would not make. Um, so that when the spot was reversed, like I would be, uh, have an edge against them. And really, if you think about poker, that's kind of all that it is about is like, you make the best decision you can in this spot. And when the spot gets reversed, if they make a worse decision, well, there's like your natural edge. Yeah. There's the profit. I think, uh, as Clancy calls this reciprocity. Uh, it's either Slansky or or maybe Tommy Angelo. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's so simple, but it's so profound. Yeah, like if everybody stacks off in a quads versus quad spot, then we shouldn't be upset when we lose money in that spot. But like if 5% of poker players are able to lay down, you know, bottom two on the flop or something, or in a rare, if you could somehow find a fold of a set on a flop, which... I don't know if anyone should be beating themselves up about it, <laughs> but if yeah. you're able to find such a spot, I actually just saw a video the other day of a guy folding bottom set to two all-ins before him. Uh, and it was top set versus middle set versus bottom set. Wow. Uh, but yeah, like yeah, if you can find those spots, I think they're, they're worth seeking. I don't know how much time should be spent obsessing about them because I do think that the biggest edges are still derived from like being in the right headspace. Um, I mean, to quote Tommy again, but like knowing when to quit, knowing how to quit. Uh, recognizing your tilt, your different types of tilt. Am I experiencing tilt now? And I think that's where all the edges are. Um, I think everyone has like a basic idea of strategy. Uh, uh, but I, I think, think you may be overestimating some things. Sorry. <laughs> I think most pros have an idea of, of their strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm I'm referring to like pros here. Um, yes. So like in the flow chart, yes, you should like iron out your leaks first. Um, but once you've done that to a reasonable degree, like the next uh, unturned stone should be getting your head right. Absolutely. And, and starting sessions well, ending sessions well, making sure you're playing your at least your B game throughout and never dipping into your C or worse game. Yeah, and just like actively seeking out things that can upgrade your, your mental game, your resilience. Um, I think meditation specifically is something that everybody, every poker player should do. We play a mind sport for the love of God. Like why do we not um, work out our mind? Um, and for meditation, like the first thing that the first, um, thing that you can use it tactically for is gaining awareness that like, you're not in a good space right now. So maybe we should step away from the table for a little bit. Um, because if you don't have awareness that you're about to punt, then you're just going to punt. But if you have awareness, then maybe you can like take a deep breath, collect your thoughts, step away from the table for a few minutes and kind of get yourself back in order or just, you know, call it a night. Yeah. Yeah. When I get felted, I have like a mental checklist I go through. Like, am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I sad? Am I angry? And if I like pass all the checklists, like if I'm not feeling those things, then I'll reload. Doesn't Wallace any- do that too? Does he? I think so. I think he mentioned it. Somebody, somebody oh, that was so on the show, I think they mentioned they also like walk around the casino one time too to give themselves like time to reflect on the situation. I shouldn't be surprised because like a bunch of people are playing the same game. They should eventually end up with the same strategies, both <laughs> on the felt and away from the felt. 
Yeah, yeah. that's that's um, pretty funny. That, that's cool. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your bootcamp experience? The most interesting thing about the bootcamp, it's a pre-flop bootcamp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post-game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the bootcamp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Boot Camp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Where were we at in your poker journey? I think we're like 2015-ish. You, you take yeah, down this, yeah. so this tournament. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I guess the big changes were like 
in like 2012, 2013, I was kind of at another point where I was, um, I wasn't feeling enough intellectual stimulation. I mean, poker is stimulating, but I was like, I was, I was wanting for something more. And I, I was thinking I wanted to go back to school. And so I, um, but I didn't want to do engineering because I fucking hated engineering. <laughs> and so I spent some time thinking about, um, you know, what it is I want to study or what is it that I cared about? Like, you know, what are my passions? Um, cause I, I think I finally had like the re the room to breathe and to be a little introspective. And what is, what, is, what is this all for? Why am I, you know, clicking buttons for, for hours and hours every day? What's this all for? And I like was reading some like career guidance literature and there's this book um, for anyone who's like, maybe not sure about what they want to do or if they're not sure if poker is their path. Uh, it's called What Color Is Your Parachute? And that along with many other things, tried to advise people um, to monetize what you're doing in your free time. So um, what I realized I was doing in my free time was reading a lot of like, what I would call like armchair or popular economics literature. Think like the book Freakonomics. Um, and if people like that book, there's like so many others that are like it and better than it. Um, and so I realized, oh, I think I really like econ. I should, I should uh, maybe... Uh, explore this topic. And I think so I really like it. I think I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm living in Sacramento at the time and they're about to start the spring semester. And I just went to the school and I was like, Hey, I'm just a random who wants to take some classes. How do I do that? And they're like, Oh, you can audit them as like a local, you pay like per credit. What class would you like to take? And I was like, I want to take five of them. I want to take <laughs> like a normal course load for an undergrad. And so like, okay, so I signed up for all these classes. Once again, I ran hot. I drew like great instructors that had like have become my friends since then. Um, but I just took like a semester of class as an econ student. Um, and I, I fucking loved it. It was awesome. It was better than any time I'd ever had in school prior. What um, was it about econ? Why, why did it grab you? Uh, I mean, there's so many similarities between econ and poker. Um, and, and I'm wondering if poker made me appreciate econ more and econ's probably conversely made me, uh, or simultaneously made me appreciate poker more. Uh, it's, it's, it's very analytical. Uh, I mean, I took game theory in, you know, my first semester there. Um, and this was when no one knew game theory. I mean, this was back in 2012. So solvers didn't even exist yet, but like I, I learned how solvers worked before solvers, you know, were a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even know if I ever could have dreamed that like what I was learning could be applied to expensive software down the road. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's like this beautiful intersection of math and psychology and sociology. And it's also like, a, I have a deeper understanding of how the world works. Um, like I, it's, it's like being taught the code to the matrix. You know, I understand, oh, this, this system is the way it is because of incentives and yeah. people are just responding to them. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or this is the, of course, this is the equilibrium because these are the forces at play. Um, you know, in the same way we like, you know, come up with equilibrium strategies, you know, blind versus blind or something like that. Uh, so anyway, what are, I what are some, 
Sorry, I was going to ask you, I was going to dive a little bit deeper. What are some cool things in econ that you've learned that, you know, maybe counterintuitive or would just be interesting? Um, So I would say that that something I just, something that's like on the top of my mind right now, um, because I just finished it was I I wrote this um, paper that was actually just um, discussed in The Economist. So that was like a huge uh, a big deal for me today. I just got the article emailed to me from the person who wrote it. So it was in The Economist. Um, so the paper looks at the effect of vaccine lotteries. Um, so like during during COVID, uh, like so many people, you know, who were studying economics, and I guess we're kind of getting ahead here because I'm totally skipping the fact that I enrolled in a PhD program in economics, and that's where I am right now. I'm in my office and um, at uh, UC Santa Cruz. So we're like skipping steps and I can go back to that. But anyway, I wrote this paper uh, with a co-author on what's the effect of basically offering admission to a lottery if you get the vaccine. So, you know, in April, May of this year, uh, we were kind of stalling out on people getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like I debate this topic with people online all the time. And I'm trying to find a way to discuss it without pissing anyone off. Good luck. Uh, notably, mo- yeah, mainly people who are opposed to it. Um, but I guess the best way to put it is, regardless of what you think about the vaccine, it seems to be associated with like reducing people dying. And that's a good thing. I think that's objectively a good thing. Um, yeah. Was it rushed? Are there side effects? Sure. Okay. But like it prevents people from dying. So uh, state governments, I think, realized hey, we want people in our state to live. How do we get them to, how do we get them to get vaccinated if we, if we aren't going to make it mandatory? Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually do think that like, this is a really good way to do policy. Like don't just mandate everything, but like try to find ways to get people to make the right decision. Like don't, man, don't mandate that people uh, can't be fat. Find ways to incentivize healthy behaviors. Like I think that's the better path. Sure. So anyway, trying to find a way to incentivize getting vaccines. Um, they, they experimented with Ohio experimented with this idea of a lottery and basically they gave you a lottery ticket for, for getting the shot and they gave away $5 million. And the day this was announced, I was like, this is it. This is the topic. I want to study this. I'm going to be the guy who writes the paper on vaccine lotteries. And I emailed everyone in my circle, like, Hey, I really want to do this. What do you think about it? And a bunch of people said, this is stupid. You shouldn't do this. And one person said, this is awesome. I would like to help you with this. And so for the next two months, we just worked on it and finished this paper and basically found like this lottery that has a tiny EV. And I love that I get to say EV because when I discuss this paper with people, like no one knows what the hell I'm talking about. But the EV of the lottery is like a dollar and it got 80,000 people to get a shot that wouldn't have otherwise. So basically it's like, it's free money. Cause like people getting the, the value of the shot is like massive. Um, we actually find that, uh, the, the whole program costs like five and a half million dollars and it gets like almost 70 million in benefits from like reducing, um, uh, hospitalizations, you know, like it's really expensive to go to the hospital for COVID and like be on a ventilator and all that shit. Uh, not to say anything of like, we don't, we didn't find any, uh, prevention of loss of life, but I think it's cause we, uh, we didn't get to see like the results long enough. I'm sure that probably saved at least one life. And that's, that's probably worth eight to 10 million just right there. So anyway, we're kind of getting far afield from, from poker. Uh, but I, yes, I was like, 
it gave me this toolkit that I could apply to this extremely important problem. When you say a life is worth eight to 10 million, is that just arbitrary numbers? Like where, do, where does that come from? The, the yeah, it's value good, I was, of as a I life. As I was saying it, I was like, oh, fuck. I'm yeah, you open, uh, so you open it's, a it's door. The, yeah, it's called the, the, the VSL, the value of a statistical life. Mm-hmm. And it's really useful for figuring out whether different programs are worthwhile. So like a, a really great example of this is if you were just concerned about getting from point A to point B as fast as possible, you would drive as fast as your car would take you. Um, but you are inherently like accepting a lot more risk. And in fact, we know like the faster you drive, like the more likely it is you're going to die in a car accident. And so like that was the motivation or one of the motivations behind imposing speed limits. Now there's a cost there because you get places slower, but it reduces the chance of death. And you can do like a bunch of calculations and basically like speed limits and other, uh, you know, EPA policies about pollution, they all basically are valuing life at a certain number that allows us to make these trade-offs, uh, which is like one of the most, the coolest things about econ. And I think comes very naturally to poker players is the idea of these trade-offs. Um, you know, in poker, it's always like, you know, EV variance trade-offs in public policy and economics. It's uh, how do we trade, you know, money for time or, you know, uh, money for lives saved and vice versa. Yeah. Makes so, sense. Okay. Yeah. It's really hard to do that stuff. If you like, don't know if you don't have a dollar value for what life is worth. Yeah. I, I, I understand that you need yeah, some yeah. metric to judge against. Exactly. So like, exactly. exactly. Um, what are you going to do? It, it can, yeah. it, it can feel a little morbid of like one totally. life is worth no, X yeah, amount I mean, of dollars. Why economy economics is called the dismal science. Cause it's really <laughs> fucking depressing sometimes when you're like talking about death and I, and I, yeah, I'm with, with COVID, you have to, you have to, you're like confronted with it all the time. You know, like sure. this, this whole, this sucks. And, uh, you know, there's a chance that we're going to have to accept some risk and poker players are really good at this, which explain maybe explains why like some poker players are like, you know, fuck lockdowns and fuck, you know, this vaccination effort. Like we need to return to normalcy. Some people are going to die, but like there's value to having normal life. And like, I can't, I can't refute that argument. They're, they're right. But I think there's limits to it. Yeah. And poker players also like the poker space. I don't know. Like I'm not an alarmist really about most things. I don't know. Just my nature is like uh, whatever. But when I, this, this was a thing that like I kind of saw coming and I was like, this is not good. Like humans don't understand exponential growth and we're not taking this seriously. And we are about to get fucked pretty hard. Like I, told my wife and she's like, ah, you're just overreacting. I'm like, I've never, <laughs> I've never overreacted about a thing like yeah, this yeah. ever. And like, but this is the one, like, yeah. I don't know. I can't, I just can't visually, I can't see how this is going to turn out well. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of poker players kind of came to that conclusion fairly on like the, the COVID conversation was like, Oh shit, there's a lot of risk here. Like this is probably going to be bad in like January or February. Yeah, no, I think poker players are really good at, at um, they're like extremely numerate. Um, they're good at forecasting. They're good at estimation. They're good at all the things that allowed people to predict what was going to happen. What's interesting, though, has been this weird twist that I didn't anticipate and I'm trying to make sense of. But like people who are crushers are taking these really weird stances, um, you know, with regard to um vaccines or mitigation efforts and like yeah i mean i i was discussing it with um um 
poker player today, uh, you know, how weird it is that um, Alex Fox and, and, and Kristen Bicknell, who are like two of the best tournament players on the planet, are taking these like bizarre stances. And I really want to take the time to understand why someone would, would feel that way. I, I mean, I've thought about this so much because, yeah, it's just – and Big Nell and Fox and I, I really don't know. All, all I know is, like, I did weigh in on um, – I, I weighed in on one article in, like, that thread, and it was, like, about absolute risk versus relative risk and mm-hmm. the percentages, and they were talking about, like, people are lying to you because the absolute risk is only, like, 2%. So this, like, led me down. I, I try to keep an open mind, and so I'm like, okay – Brad, what's the first qu- what's the first thing I need to know here? Well, what the fuck does relative and absolute risk yeah, yeah. mean, right? So that I look it up, I read about it, I take like an hour trying to figure out like all these things, and then I, I'm like, okay, I got it. And then so I just like rationally reply in a tweet and like leave an article. I think it was like Reuters uh, article, but I mean the uh-huh. information is like many places because it's just like a yeah. definition. The definition sure. is a definition. Sure. So anyway, I leave it and then like. Just some guy, I can't even remember who it was, some a poker player with like a blue check mark was like, oh, that's great that you educated yourself and did some due diligence, haha. But maybe um, the person that owns Reuters like is on the board of Pfizer. So there's probably, oh. I, I don't know, there's probably some bias here. And I've actually seen that, that same statement on like Reuters and that person's on the board of like multiple times. So it's, it's becoming like some sort of like- It's a talking uh, point. It's a talking point. It's a thing that's like spreads like wildfire within that community. And it, and yeah. it just, my, my viewpoint is that it just has just gotten so emotional that like yeah. they've gone down this rabbit hole of getting a lot of bad information. And then I think what the bad information does, honestly, I think the goal is to just like discredit any form of good information first and just erode all that faith and then just feed you stuff. And then when everybody contradicts, it's like you have an argument for it because like you have no trust in anything that anybody's giving you. It's, uh, it's fucked up. Yeah, no, it's, it's really hard. I mean, it's, it's become like, um, uh, an interest of mine, like trying to figure out how do we navigate this, um, this world in which no one knows who, who or what to trust. And, you know, I, I worry that the, the equilibrium there is that basically we don't trust anything or anybody and we all throw our hands up. And that's and awful. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And so, yeah, I've been trying to like figure out and every day is a struggle <laughs> trying to figure out like, how do we restore civil discourse? How do we agree to the same ground rules? Like what are we going to trust as reputable sources? What are we going to trust as facts? Um, what, like, a, I mean, I think that I've developed like some really good questions to ask people, like, uh, what would, what would need to change for you to feel differently? Or what, what piece of information does, does your, uh, does your conclusion hinge upon? Like, if we were to take that out, like you would, you would come to a different conclusion. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's a fantastic filter because the person doesn't have an answer. Bye. See you later. Yeah. Uh, thanks for making that easier for me. Um, but secondly, I think it's the most efficient way to get the person you're talking to to think about how they think about this. And I think so often people are going to come to the conclusion, myself included, that like, oh, I'm, I'm going by feel here or I've, I've made this leap because of emotion uh, and I'm actually, I shouldn't be that confident. And it makes me 
sad that I've seen poker players um, make these errors in reasoning because it's the group that I had the most hope for. It's the group should, that should be the best thinkers on the planet. Yeah. There's a lot of in us, theory, though, you know, there's in theory, right? Uh, percentage wise, even if there, there's so many of us that like, I think percentage wise, it's just there's going to be some that sort of don't. I don't know. The cream rises and the people that like and, and, and this is true for the most part. I mean, like the brightest people I know are poker players. Like I am lucky to consider, you know, as my friends. Uh, like Andrew Brokos, you've had on mm-hmm. Andrew Brokos is incredibly bright one of the smartest people i know um and his ability in poker is strongly correlated with his ability to reason sure. and i just extrapolated that to everyone else and so when i see like deviations from that i'm like hmm why why is that why was it the case where did we go wrong with with a poker player we could frame this question as like you you deploy a strategy that you think is really good what what piece of information could you find that makes you not believe that strategy is very good anymore. And I think that should click to poker players where it's like, you know, you make a hero fold in a spot. Like what would you have to learn about this situation to change your strategy? And is there something that you could learn? And like, if there's nothing that you could learn to change your strategy, I would very much like to say that maybe you're not a, the high level poker player that I thought you were. Right. Because there's always something that some bit of information that can change the strategy that you deploy. And, and that's sort of like parallel to what you said, right? Like, what's something like, what is your opinion hinging on? Like, what piece of information could we change? And, and like you said, if they don't have an answer, well, then game over, right? Like, just how do we move on from here? Because like, you know, you're just wrapped up in cognitive dissonance land and you're just not going to be reasoned with at all. Yeah, but I I do think that this is like maybe, you know, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing that like we can all be working on on a regular basis. Like becoming a better thinker is something I've become obsessed with for the last number of years. And maybe this is like as good of a segue as I'm going to get. So so I do the I do the undergrad in Sacramento. Yeah. um, And then, you know, I'm. I'm enjoying it. And my professors are saying, you're really good at this. You should do our master's program. Uh, and I was like, sure, I guess so. I mean, that seems reasonable. I'll give me more time to like explore this topic, you know, find out whether I'm going to like it or not. And I think there's value in trying lots of shit until you figure out what it is you like and what you don't like. So like, I like how I you're was... like surprised at every step of this journey. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of like econ. I'm uh, I should do math. I'm good at this. Okay, let's just do this. <laughs> well, I just I I think I like I I lost this uh, this hubris or this ego at some point. But the, the like I was really good at making decisions. Like mm-hmm. I chose a major that I hated. I don't know if I went to the best school. I don't know if I've dated the best people. Like I I I've made mistake after mistake. So I think it's really good to like be more. Um, you know, curious and exploratory and, and try to not have supreme confidence that we're always making perfect decisions at every, at every point. Could not have said it better myself. I have <laughs> fucked up more times than is <laughs> believable. Yeah. And we're better as a result of it. You know, it's not, you don't want the, you don't want the person who's never made a mistake. You want the person that's made lots of mistakes. Every single time. Like when I was young and stupid, I'd be like, why would anybody buy like a book on marriage from some dude that's been divorced three times? 
Well, it's because he's thought about like what goes into <laughs> making a happy marriage, right? Exactly. Like he's incentivized right. very much so than the person who just marries their high school sweetheart and shit goes right for 60 years. Like you don't want to, you, you can't replicate that. Like you, you don't want to listen to that person. You want to, you want to learn from the dude that has failed and p- invested so much energy and thought into a subject. Yeah. I mean, when I studied engineering, we studied bridges and buildings that fell and collapsed. In economics, we talk about market failures. You, mm. There's so much to learn from failure. Um, very little is learned from success. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do this master's program. Uh, I really enjoy it. I, I have like this mentor that kind of guides me along the way. And I kind of plants the seed like you should consider a PhD. I think that would be, I think you'd be really good at it. I think it suits <laughs> you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so then I, I, after I finished the master's, I applied to PhD programs um, did terribly, just really, really awful, um, with applying. I applied to 23 schools. I only got into three, um, and ended up choosing, uh, UC Santa Cruz where I, where I'm currently, uh, residing and started in 2015 and actually kind of had the interesting situation of like winning a bracelet right before starting graduate school. And I think a lot of people around me assumed that I was just going to drop out. And I was like, do you know me? Like I could, I could have binked the main and I'd still do this. Like, it's not about the It's the easier now. <laughs> like now you well, just have yeah, more money yeah. to go through. <laughs> well, it's bizarre because grad students by and large are broke as shit and like are eating like ramen cup of noodles and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's weird being like a grad student, you know, who has, who has money. Like that's, it's awkward at times. Um, but I do think that most people pursue grad school for like an income boost. And I was just here cause like, I like it. And yeah. that's, that's, it's tough at times. Like for example, I'm not in a hurry to graduate. You know, I I'm trying to get motivated to graduate now. I mean, I'm finishing my sixth year or starting my sixth year now. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I think it's so much easier to graduate when you need to go get some money. <laughs> Like being broke is a really powerful motivator as it was for me when I started poker. Like it was a really powerful motivator. Um, and I think that that's one of the curses that comes with poker success sometimes is uh, I don't have the motivation that I once had. And that's, that's tough. It's like yeah. hard to acknowledge that. Yeah. I can't, I think it was Rainer, Rainer Kempe. We were talking about like how that German crew just basically like had tons of success all those Germans all at the same time, they were all young. They played in these tournaments. And like the one thing that they realized, they were like, wow, these like older guys, they don't, they're not as good as like we thought they were. Like we're actually, we actually have edges against these guys. And the conclusion they came to is like, it's very natural for the younger hungry people to elevate themselves very, very quickly because like, you know, the older generation, they've got money. Like they're, they're soft these days. They don't spend time in the lab. They're not super hungry. They're not talking poker 60 hours a week. So naturally, you know, you can, you can catch up with them very, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's almost inevitable. I'm really impressed when people can stay devoted to the game uh, after having a lot of financial success. I will admit that like, I do not study as I, as much as I once did. Um, I would also argue that the thing I'm more concerned with, and I believe you talked about this with um, Sean Snyder about like finding easy games or finding like private games. Uh, and I, and I've had a hell of a time getting into private games, uh, but I do just seek out easy games to, to hit, you know, the hourly that I'm, you know, 
I have like a minimum hourly that I'm willing to accept to sit at the poker table. And if it ever dips below that, I'm out. Um, but I'll play if it's above that. And so that's, that's what I do. I, I try to play in games where, you know, I hit that minimum and I play an amount where I feel like I'm not being totally lazy, uh, you know, where I'm, where I'm generating some income. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard to, it's hard to be motivated to grind like I used to be. It's very difficult. And this is like shameful for me to admit, but, um, this last it's a safe few, space it's, you can share here. <laughs> well, <laughs> in, in the last like two years when I've been studying data and the analytics side and like really looking at what people are doing and then building out my courses, because like that's sort of how I structure my coaching methodologies based on like massive amounts of data and fig- mm-hmm. seeing trends. What are people doing? How do we exploit this? Um, yep. so it's removed from like the solver side. I do, we do use like fact checkers for solver and some other stuff. But anyway, basically I've grown more as a poker player in the last like year of building out my courses and thinking about poker than I have in the last decade before where I'm just like grinding on a daily basis and playing cards. And like, you know, you get in this space to where in the beginning I could tell you everything about everything, how this player looks, how the chips went in the middle their stack size, what they said. I like could vividly remember all the spots. And then five years in, it was like, I could play a session online for like six hours, shut it down and have no fucking clue. And like, I know I won or lost, but I don't know any hand that I played. Yeah, like, yeah. I just know that I played them. Um, and I think that like, we, that's sort of that malaise. We can just go through and not be as um, dedicated to study, not be as dedicated to growth, not be as dedicated to learning. But then like when my incentives changed, where my incentive is, oh, I'm building a business now um, so that I can support my podcast habit. Uh, right. Well, now I need to make some shit that's like really, really good. How do I do that? And then in the act of like building, I'm naturally learning too. And then when I get done with stuff, I'm like, hot damn, I'm like way better at poker than I was like a year ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that like players just, it's easy to get complacent and sort of lazy for lack of a better word as it relates to like growing as a poker player yeah it seems like content creation has been really good for keeping people motivated um i know that so i'm working on a um a mixed game book uh nice i don't know what's going to happen with COVID. i was like under contract to write it with um uh dnb the the publishing house um which i guess has become a major publisher i think two plus two is kind of bowed out are they gone? Um, I think they sold to like hand to note. Yeah, I know they sold the website. I don't know about the like the publishing or if it's separate or if it's one entity. Um, yeah, but I don't. I don't know. So, um, but yeah, they they basically said like all of our contracts are paused for during uh, during COVID. But I know that like in working on the book, I kind of got a little bit more motivated. So yeah, I think there's something to the to what you're saying that you need. You almost need like a commitment device of some sort that like keeps you keeps you going and keeps you interested. Yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it was like, I really love doing this. Um, I, I like poker. I enjoy playing poker, um, but I love doing this podcast thing. And it's been a really long time since like I've genuinely loved what I do. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I wanted to keep doing it and I need a mechanism. Well, I need to make something that's good that I that people will buy that's valuable and impactful and all this stuff. And yeah, just the incentive lined up to where if I want to keep doing this, I need to build a business like in earnest and not just be fucking around like 
saying I'm building a business and just doing a podcast that makes no money for, <laughs> for a yeah, year yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just the incentives got to be there. And I found that like, if you change the incentive structure around to where like, Oh, I'm making money because of this course that I'm making. Well, okay. I'm going to make the course. Um, a, a thing that I did like a few months back, I was releasing a course and I'd been procrastinated, procrastinating on it because like, it's kind of hard. Like, you, mm -hmm. you should know writing a book is fucking more difficult than like whenever people say it's difficult, they undersell it. <laughs> like yeah, even when totally. they say it's totally. the most difficult it's thing like, I've ever agonizing. done. Yeah. Yeah. It's painful. Um, so I just told my guys, like, if I don't have this done in two weeks, like here's the sales page, you buy it. If it's not done in two weeks, I'm refunding everybody's money and I'll give it to you for free. Um, and then like, sold like uh, over 10 K and then I was like, okay, I'm properly motivated to crank this sucker out now. But I mean, I, I think that like just a lot of life is based on incentives and accountability and like self willpower is so fucking, uh, useless. <laughs> like it, it is such, is it, I'm not motivated yeah. by self willpower. And I think most people aren't either. Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate that you, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the most important things we can do is like to know thyself and the fact that you know that you like are more extrinsically motivated than intrinsically, which I think is true of a lot of poker players. Mm -hmm. um, I've been kind of having this discussion recently with friends. So I'm like a big believer in weight loss bets to try to get healthy. Mm -hmm. And I have stacked so many of these over the years and I'm in the middle of like three of them right now. <laughs> Um, and they work for me. And like, I have felt shame about them in the past. Like, Oh my God, why can't, why do is the only way that I can stop being fat if I have a bunch of money on it. Um, but I think the better attitude to have is this works. I don't have a better way of doing it. So until I have the better way, do this thing. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's getting me there. Um, but yeah, I think the important thing is like fucking just figure out what works. <laughs> exactly and then just you found do it. something that worked which i think is really clever um and yeah then you just go um we're, we're we'll be on the verge of of shutting this down Ver veronica um on her youtube channel i don't want to say podcast uh, her interview she interviewed you yeah, yeah. and you are talking about something that like i experienced just a few weeks ago which i thought was hilarious you said that like if somebody's not willing to bet on something then it's just like over. That's how you can like tell somebody's commitment to a, an opinion or a belief. Um, and yeah, so we had a poker strategy discussion on the spot, like in my community and my associate coach was like on the other side because like he just, for some reason we, <laughs> we butt heads, um, sometimes on our opinions and I'm like, okay, so like it's 80 big blinds to call and you win 120. So like I'll bet 80 to 120 anybody in the group wants to bet me like just $80. I bet 80, I win 120, accepting all bets up to whatever y'all want to do. And like not one person took my bet. And I'm like, okay, like, see, there's 10 people on the other side of this, but I'm the only one willing to bet money. And I was wrong. <laughs> like we got the hand, the hand back cause it's on ignition. And so we get whole cards and like, I would have lost, but I mean, it's a pot odds thing. So like I should lose more often than I win, but even still, it's like, anyway, t tell me about that, like how you s realized that or stumbled into that, because I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's it's definitely, it's a viewpoint that's attributed to me and like it's something that I 
have amassed about all the time. I did, I did um, uh, Andrew Brokos's and, and Nate Mevis's uh, podcast and they, they, I appreciated that they challenged me on it. I think that they really tried to play devil's advocate. Um, and I, and I need to play devil's advocate for it more because I'm, I'm firmly, I'm a firm believer that it's like uh, the way to go. But basically this idea is that, um, you know, when you have a disagreement with someone that feels like it's, you know, irreconcilable, uh, oftentimes a good thing to go to is just, why don't we make a wager? Why don't we make a market here? Um, and I think it's, it's an efficient way. I mean, I'm all about as a, like a poker player and an economist, like let's, let's try to be as efficient as possible. Um, if, it's, it's serving a couple of purposes. One is like, as you found, throwing the bet out there and not getting anyone to take it is like a quick filter to recognize like, okay, it seems like no one's confident on the, on the other side. But in a world where you do find someone who's going to take the other side of it, it's literally a win-win because, you know, in a world where it's not going to be like so probabilistic, which like, I think yours is like a little probabilistic. So even if you, like you, you kind of, described it like even the fact that you lost like you might have gotten gotten the best of it and you're not you're not exactly sure. sure but assume something that's like less um you know stochastic and you have like a there's like a there's a true state of the world and we're like betting on the true state of the world uh, and we can determine that um after the bet that it's a win-win because one of us is going to learn better faster more it's going to be like burned in our memory uh, when we're wrong and I think that in a world where we can normalize betting on things that we disagree about, even for small amounts, and that's typically the pushback I get, like, oh, people don't have infinite money or like uh, people aren't gamblers. It's like, okay, we could bet a dollar. Like, I don't give a shit what the number is. Mm -hmm. I just want us to be betting something because this is like a, a unit of account that's going to keep track of, and you can have a running tally with your friends. You could like never settle this. And it's like, okay, I'm stuck a bunch of $1 bets. <laughs> my model of the world is not good. I need to update this shit. I am a big believer that the problem we have when we have disagreements is they aren't resolved because we're too quick to just throw them out if, uh, if we happen to be mistaken or we don't follow up on things when, when we have disagreements. It's just like, oh, that person's stupid and I'll move on. And but when you have to keep track of this stuff, I think I, my belief, my naive belief is that people actually become better, you know, uh, mental modelers of the world. They're more invested. And one thing that I, I've talked about on this show many times is like, you want to be wrong in a debate. Because like, if you're wrong, like you get to grow, you're the one who experiences growth and you learn something. And so like, um, tell me about why you're happy that Brokus played devil's advocate. Because I, that's a, a, an interesting statement, and yeah, just like to dive a little deeper. So similar to the fact that we don't learn from success, we really only learn from from failures. Like successes are just confirmatory, and like they don't they don't help us. Um, I don't gain a lot from talking to a bunch of people who are like minded, who are just going to like nod with everything I say. Yeah, I want I want my beliefs to be bulletproof. I want them to be immune from every criticism. And if they're not, they're not good and they need to be strengthened. And so like if I have a you know, discussion with Andrew, so I'll give you a great example. I was talking to Andrew today and um, Dan Smith is doing this um, 
this charity match for uh, Afghan refugees. And he's like matching up to 100K for donations. And I shared this and I said like, too often we see like Twitter activism as a substitute for actually doing good and like actually contributing money. And honestly, like $20 to this organization is probably worth like thousands of tweets or thousands of retweets or likes. Sure. And Andrew pushed back and he's like, I actually think that you're like, you're off here by a large margin. And I appreciated that more than I would have appreciated a thousand people saying like, oh, I'm really glad that you said that. Like, that's so, that's so great. Because Andrew got me thinking like, am I off here? Am I like poorly calibrated? Should I, should it have been less? Should it have been more? And then I started thinking about it and I thought about it more post-criticism than I ever would have thought about it had people just patted me on the back and said like, oh yeah, I'm really glad you did that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I do, and, but it's, it's, I think it's a rare quality. I think it's something that you have to, hopefully you can develop it over time where you actually seek out. Like I think um, sometimes people, people see me as being um, antagonistic um, or, or um, uh, you know, like a polemic who's constantly seeking debate. And like, what I am is I'm trying to get better. Like I'm constantly trying to get better. And the only way to get better is to interact with people who disagree with you. Like I, I happen to be like left leaning right now, but I don't think I want to talk to a bunch of Democrats. I want to talk to Republicans. I want to hear the best ideas on the other side. And that's just always for everything. I want to hear the best ideas on the other side. And there's a lot of value in breaking things too. Like, and, and this is just in life, like you have an opinion, you have a belief, let's try to break it, right? Let's challenge this to see how it holds up. Because like, if it doesn't hold up well, then like, you don't want to be stuck with a belief that doesn't hold up well for very long, right? And you especially don't want to root your whole identity and life around a belief that doesn't hold up very well for very long. So Absolutely. yeah, let's break shit. Let's accept being wrong and let's be happy about being wrong and be happy about changing an opinion. When we gain new information that contradicts that opinion, that is objective. And we're like, oh yeah, maybe I thought about that incorrectly. I just, I, I don't know. This, this is something that like the people, if I'm coaching a private coaching student, the person that can never admit a mistake or that like has an opinion, bears down and won't change it based on data or evidence like that's somebody that just isn't successful at poker they they're just totally. never well, they're successful. not gonna be successful in life um and that so you've recommended a couple books i have this really weird recommendation system where i only allow myself to recommend one thing per week and yeah. after i give that recommendation i never recommend anything else for the rest of the week <laughs> and and then i have this other thing i do where if i recommend something to someone and they don't like it i'll pay them for their time Oh, so that's a good that a one. Book, a book I am reading right now. Well, the idea behind both of those is they both are my clever attempts at trying to figure out how can I get you to value my recommendation over the recommendation of all your friends. So let's say you have a hundred friends that are constantly watch this show, watch this YouTube video, read this book, listen to this album, blah, 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 blah. It's too much. And honestly, I, I think you'd be lying if you said like you were trying to you know, aggregate these recommendations and synthesize them and go through them one by one. No, you're probably just tuning them all out. So my goal selfishly is I want to be at the top. I want my recommendations for all my friends. Oh, Andrew recommended this. I got to check that out. Why and do you think so, humans value recommendations so much? Like, why is it that like I get done reading like a good, not uh, a good fiction book. And the first thing I want to do is like, Hey, 
read this fucking book. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like, why, yeah, why yeah. do we do that? Uh, I think at least two reasons. One is we have this terrible temporal bias where whatever we did just now is the best thing we've ever done. <laughs> uh, and we forget things that we did a week ago or a mm-hmm. month ago or God forbid years ago. Uh, no one says their favorite book is something they read when they were 14. It's, you know, oh, it's the book I just finished a week ago. Sure. So there's that. And then I think there is, you know, and this is less cynical. I think that we want to share. We want, oh, I, I had this great experience. I want to share it with this other person or I want to talk to them about it. Uh, I mean, that's why I like have tried to start book clubs over the years. Um, because I just, by, the only thing better than reading a book is like enjoying it with, with friends. Absolutely. Um, it, so anyway, the book that I want to recommend that I think <laughs> hits upon some of the things we've talked about yeah. um, is called The Scout Mindset by this woman, Julia Galef who's a fantastic Twitter follow and a great author. Um, But the scout mindset uh, refers to uh, this dichotomy she describes of you can either be a soldier or a scout. And a soldier is like someone who's like tribal, who is like fighting for their side, like has an emotional attachment to their views and, and positions. And a scout is like the person who's trying to make a map. And they're like, oh, I don't have a, I just wanna see what's out in the world. And I'm like kind of the exploratory mindset that we kind of talked about earlier. Um, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I just think is so fucking important right now because it's not going to get better. It's just going to get worse. The toxic environment that we live in. Yeah, I, it, you're right. And especially with like, I think there was the same Harris podcast on like deep fakes. And oh, and I was going to mention this, by the way, when you talked about uh, not believing anything, like that's what equilibrium is. Like they go deep into that and talk about like basically misinformation campaigns and deep fakes and all this stuff. And the end goal is for you to not believe anything. The exactly, end goal is apathy, right? Yes. And yes. as soon as they deep said that, scare me a lot. I was like, holy fuck. Like I'm the apathetic one. Like that's, I'm the person that they're talking about because I'm just like, whatever. Like I'm, it's too much trouble to get to the root of anything. And oftentimes when you do, it's just like, it doesn't help. <laughs> like when I, when I learned about like the absolute, um, effect versus the relative effect. Like I, I upgraded my own knowledge, but like nobody listened or cared. So I wanted to, I wanted to, in the moment, I wanted to compliment you on that because I actually think that that's a really interesting topic and it's something that most people don't know much about. And I was thinking, God, how cool would it have been if he had like written a tweet storm explainer on absolute versus relative risk? I don't have that kind of confidence, man. I just learned it. <laughs> so hold on, hold on a sec. But you got you went from like what? Like so I like to think about knowledge as being like on a spectrum of zero to ten. You went yeah. from like zero to seven in an hour. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. A seven can bring up all the people zero to six. That's that's a good point. And there's there's huge value there. I follow a uh, there's like a, a Twitter bot that basically looks for news headlines where absolute and relative risk is confused mm-hmm. and they like blast it out and it's like I want to say it's like all caps, like, like Hulk or something like that, where it's like Hulk <laughs> angry, relative risk is this, absolute risk is this. And no, I think it's, it's something that it, it's a simple, it's a relatively simple concept. You could explain it pretty quickly and it makes you a better critical thinker because you realize these, um, this distinction that's really important to understanding scientific results. And I wanted to know because like, okay, like, are, is this right? Is this statement correct? Like, should I be changing my thinking about something, right? So like, I want to learn and educate myself. And, and you know, I don't know, Pat, Patrick Howard said it very well that like, as it relates to COVID, there's two sides. And like, 
from his experience and everything he's learned about the both sides of the argument is like one are really smart people who are backed by data and backed by things that they can measure and confirm. And then the other is like a bunch of really smart people that are, you know, backed by more um, guesses or opinions or, you know, X, Y, or Z, or because of this thing happens, then something else might happen. Where it's just like kind of conjecture and opinion and noise. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, just really think about who you're listening to and try to objectively analyze all the things. And I could change my mind on the vaccine given the right data. Like, I don't know that I, <laughs> I don't know that that'll happen, but like, yeah, I would. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important whenever you're like debating someone or debating is too strong. You're having a discussion with someone and you guys don't perfectly agree. I find that trying to find a few things that are reasonable from the other person goes a, a long way. So like I am bending over backwards to engage people who are anti-vax or people who are skeptical. This drives uh, and, me, and I, poker players yeah. should know better. Like poker players should know better that in the world of like influence, you don't just fucking hit people over the head with a hammer and insult them, their intelligence and call them names. That that's never influences anybody. Like you're playing a game here. Let's play the game well. And like calling somebody names is playing the game like shit. But we're human and like everyone does it. I mean, imagine if you were like Tommy Angelo and instead of like trying to, you know, uh, sweet talk people, you were like, stop tilting, idiot. Why are you fucking <laughs> tilting? God, don't be so stupid and give away money. Like that's not yeah. effective. Um, but, you know, I think it's really easy to fall into that trap that, and it's, it relates to this whole tribalism thing. And like, we want to fight, like we're wired to fight for our side. Yeah. No, it's like we're going to war, but instead of for our country, we're going to war for a fucking idea. And it's Kill so your identity. This is like, you know, a lot, most cognitive biases are rooted in your identity and how you see yourself in the world. And so like the more things you attach yourself to identity wise, the more biased you're going to be. And I mean, this is just something that like one of my favorite experiences is um, like eating an edible and feeling like the disillusion of ego and just like kind of it's all it's this weird space where i feel like i see things much more clearly and like all the stories that are in place and why people do what they do and how like kind of silly all of it is um but yeah like i think that we we root our identities in too much and you know the reality is is we're just some bucket of awareness that has like this avatar body going through life and we were born with a bunch of random features like I, I identify myself as a white person right but like am i like it should i i don't know the answer to that because like i had no control over it it just is what i am i identify myself as brad but like that's an arbitrary label that my mom gave me at birth um so anyway i just uh, going off on a little tangent here on identity I think some useful framing that that helps me on this topic is like, you know, we are this piece of wetware that has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, and we run a really buggy OS. And there's only one person that's in charge of debugging the OS, and it's us. Yeah, it's us. So do a good job. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool, man. Uh, you, you mentioned your book. Say it again. It's... Uh... Uh, the scout mindset. The, the scout and I will mindset. Say anyone, anyone who hears this, and if they buy the book and don't like it, or if they read the book and they feel like it was a waste of time, 
hit me up. I will buy the book back from you or I will try to make amends. <laughs> what do amends entail? I'm not sure. I've, I've paid people for their time, but like it's tricky with books because like, I don't know how long it takes someone to read a book, but at least a money back guarantee, I will offer that. Anyone who buys the book, I'll buy it back. Cool, man. Uh, I assume that it's just gold. And one thing, yeah, on that topic of like recommendations, one conclusion that I've come to is like, I think the one thing that we tend to value as humans are memories. And when we have a memory that we associate emotion with that we enjoy, like, like you said, sharing is operative. We want to share that memory, that experience with somebody else. And that's where like the recommendation engine comes from. But I love how you incentivize it because so many times I'm like, I watch a documentary or something and I'm like, fuck, this would help so many people like watch this thing. And I like, I can't, I can't pay them to do it, but maybe I should. Yeah. I, I once had a conversation with, um, uh, Igor Kurganov, uh, lives, live Burry's, um, boyfriend and, mm -hmm. and high stakes poker player. And he and I like tried to develop like an app, um, because we wanted to have like money be in part of this too. Like, Hey, I, I have this book and I know my friend will like it, but I can't find a way to make him read it. What if I like gave him this monetary incentive? Yeah. And it was like trying to like combine altruism and recommendations and it kind of fell apart and we were both super busy, but like, I do think that there's untapped, um, like utility gains there. If like, if we could like match people with, like, I'm sure you have friends where you're like, Oh my, I think he's got to see this movie or he's got to listen to this podcast, but it's hard to cut through the noise. It, it is there. Well, in this day and age, we get so many hits and impressions on our attention. There's just only so yeah. much things that we can do. It was so much um, easier when there were like a handful of philosophers and the Bible. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very easy to have all the same experiences as everybody else. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so uh, just two more questions. We'll call it. Um, first, what are your goals in poker? What does that look like for you? Is poker a major part of your life these days? You just put it in your, your minimum hourly? So we haven't really touched upon it very much. Um, and that's, that's on me. Cause I too try to bring it up a lot. Um, in 2015, I, I, uh, found, uh, this philosophy known as effective altruism. Um, uh, and it's something that, uh, has started this, uh, meta charity called reg raising for effective giving. And it's, you know, Phil Bort and live and Igor and a bunch of other high stakes players, um, started this charity to try to motivate players, poker players to give a portion of their winnings. Um, and I, uh, I found this and, and, and totally bought into it right before I won my bracelet. And so I gave uh, a bunch of money that I won uh, to charity. Uh, and this is from someone who I'd never given more than $10 to charity in my life. And then I gave six figures uh, to charity. So hopefully that like that impresses upon people like, oh, wow, I can't believe that's a big change. I wonder what there, there is to that. Um, and so my, all my goals related to poker since 2015 have been, how can I make more to give more? Mm. Um, and that's kind of how I think about it. Every year I try to give as much as I can um, to, uh, to charity, to, to a specific type of charity, basically the most effective charities in the world. Um, have you, cause that's a big thing. Yeah. Have you seen any changes to mindset, motivation, um, when you're framing it in this way, because I know that like when we have like goals that are just like monetarily driven, they're much less impactful to us. But 
this seems to be, you know, beyond money, which feels like a better yeah. driver. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I've never been motivated to have stuff. Um, but I would say the thing that I was struggling with after playing for a few years is I started to get concerned about the ethics of poker. Sure. Um, that it is like inherently a predatory game uh, that we play. Mm -hmm. And there's some various ways you can justify it. Like, you know, we talk about, we talk about wins above replacement. Like if I get up, another body occupies this seat. Uh, so it's not like, We've you know, all the had these happen. existential <laughs> crises yeah, totally. break down. The game's going to yeah. happen whether I'm here or not. But my ethical concerns disappeared overnight when I was like, oh, the person who would be sitting here instead of me isn't going to give shit to charity. And I am. And not only that, if I play this game and I can represent this organization, I might be able to move the needle for a few other people too. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. And one of my private coaching students, we had the same conversation a little while back he's, he's younger and was talking about like, what are we doing? We're just like taking it's just predatory. And I just said like, well, you know, you're winning a lot of money. Like, have you considered what you're doing with that money? Like you can put that money in action doing good things. And, and like, that's a way to give back, right? If you feel like you're not giving back, then you can just give back in that way, right? There's nothing stopping you. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, and he was like, oh shit, you're right. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, and that's yeah. sort of like, if you're a high six poker player that has these existential thoughts, consider giving back, doing something that you think benefits humankind that gives you fulfillment and that makes you proud. What's been so awesome is the exact type of skills that are associated with success in poker are like highly correlated, if not perfectly mapped to the kinds of, um, thinking that leads to wanting to give to charities that are doing like the most good, like on a per dollar basis. And so it's just been awesome to see the high stakes community over the last decade is like totally has totally flipped on this. And now they're all about, I mean, in much the same way that like every poker player is like meditating and doing yoga and eating well, like at the highest levels, a lot of them are giving a substantial amount of their money to, to charity. And it's been so cool to see, you know, a field that was so full of like vice and degeneracy has like embraced all these really like healthy, good things. It's so, so cool. It's and, so easy to defend poker now. And I think inherently, like I said, we've all had these existential thoughts and I think it just stems from like understanding people and psychology and empathy and just all these things, which also leads to not, which also leads to like loving people and not wanting to hurt people and like feeling their pain when you stack them in a big pot or whatever it is, which is like, then you kind of feel gross about like winning a pot. You're like, ugh, I, I, you know, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? So Basically, yeah, it makes sense that this would have taken off like wildfire because I think that, like you said, it's in alignment with who most high-stakes poker players are, to my knowledge. Um, and we're all looking for that, right? Like, we're all looking for some sort of fulfillment and some sort of way to affect change and help um, and make people feel better, provide them with more resources. And especially because, like, we do take a lot and we don't exactly give a lot back to society or the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping that like at some point in the near future that I can just be like the businessman that like regs the tournament. And then like when he binks it, just gives it all away. Yeah. Barry Greenstein it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Start Barry Greenstein in it. Um, yeah. Cool, man. So, 
final question. If the, uh, the Chasing Poker Greatness audience wants to learn more about you on the World Wide Web, where can they do so? I would say that I conduct most of my business on Twitter. Uh, I really, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic medium. I just feel like I'm such a shill for, for Twitter lately <laughs> that I think it's, uh, it's, it's better than all the other social media platforms for a variety of ways. But I think the way that I always try to sell Twitter is like, in what other time and medium would I have been able to interact with multiple Nobel Prize winners? And I've had like conversations with fucking Nobel Prize winners, and that's insane. That's so insane. It's so amazing. Um, but I've made so many friends there. I think that if you're, as is always the case, you know, you have to be a good curator of your feed. You have to block toxic people or mute them or whatever. You get good at this, but man, you can, I'm, I'm a better thinker. I'm a better person because of my interactions on Twitter. Awesome. And, and so Twitter for me, what's interesting is like, I didn't give a shit about Twitter for like years. Like I was like, whatever, just like, uh, doing business stuff or like promoting whatever, I don't care. And then like, you know, Galfond and Kuhn and other crushers like followed me. And then all of a sudden I'm like, fuck now I've, I can't like just blast out spammy. Like I've got to actually like think and <laughs> like, I can't just say something it's just like your course that you sold before you finished it. You're like, Oh shit, I got to do this now. Yeah. <laughs> like would Jason Kuhn approve of this tweet? Oh God. Um, Oh, speaking of Jason Kuhn, he had this fantastic tweet today about, um, uh, was it, it was about like uh, anger and, and lashing mm. out and how that reveals like something that we feel deep within us and processing like trauma. I mean, sh this guy has been through some shit. I remember I, I was like hanging out with him at the World Series once we were like in the in the uh, the steam room together, uh, which sounds weird, but <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> I'm remembering the scene and he talks about how like he did. um it was like acid or, or MDMA or something. And it like helped him to process his childhood trauma. And I was like, what childhood trauma? He's like, Oh yeah. My dad tried to stab me when I was a kid. And I was like, Holy shit. Holy shit. This guy's been through some stuff. Yeah. And, but I mean, to your point, like going through shit, having mistakes, having like broken, being broken, you come out in the other end so much stronger. And that and, guy is strong in every possible way. <laughs> yeah. He, and he's just a good human being. And, really and I is. think, ultimately that's that's what matters and yeah he again somebody that just overcomes problems and like is like okay i have this problem how do i deal with this how do i cope and there's a lot of i mean speaking of mdma like there's a lot of therapeutic um uses that are being found these days which is pretty reassuring speaking of effective charities i, I know there's a charity that's trying to fund um research in this area of, of dealing with um various conditions that are, I guess, effectively treated with, um, uh, what's the term? Is it psychotic? No, that's not it. It's, but those like alternative yeah, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> the word is like slipping my mind. Psychedelics, yeah, psychedelics, psychedelics. There you go. Yeah. 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 Psychedelics. Um, well, cool, man. It, it's been great having you on and, you know, I would love to have you back on in the near future. We, I don't even know if we made it through your poker journey. I know that I didn't ask any, any of my, my normal questions, but it was just, it was a really great time. And I'm just happy to have you. No, I was happy to be on. And I, I will say that, like, I do think that if I have anything interesting to say, it's probably going to be more outside of poker. And I try to find ways to connect it. Yeah. Um, but I think poker players would benefit from like, trying to get outside of being like completely poker centric. I know like the, 
the more I get outside of poker, just like with your course development, the more you get away from it, like the better it's going to make your, your poker. And I think for me personally, I'm as there's a reason why I do a podcast on the journey of poker and not like the nuts and bolts of like tactics and strategy. I mean, I do do like tactical Tuesday on Tuesday, but by and large, what I love the most is like understanding where people come from. Like what led you to this point? You know, speaking of like Jason Kuhn, right? Like what led you here to this person that you are today? Because as somebody that's been in the poker world, I know that I know it didn't happen overnight. There were many iterations. There were many failures, many moments of like contemplation of your life. And I want to know the stories behind that. Um, and that's what I love so much about doing this podcast. Yeah. And if, if poker greatness is good for anything, it's that it, it opens doors and it makes you potentially a better person. And that's what I've experienced from poker. It's like, it's just opened so many doors. And I, I'm just, I find myself in conversations saying like, a great thing about poker is that this, or poker makes me think this way, or this is a really cool concept I derive from poker. And that just comes up so often. I'm just like, I'm so certain that poker has been hugely a huge positive force in my life. Money aside. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's good for like bullshit detection. It's good for like seeing logical fallacies. It's good for like seeing like, oh, I, this person clearly is not, uh, hasn't done their research on whatever, or, you know, just doing something perfectly right. And the shit hitting the fan and you, everything fails. Um, and just being able to accept that, like you couldn't have changed it no matter what you, what you did because you acted with the best information you had in the moment. And then the chips fall where they may. And the struggles. I mean, every time you get felted, you die a little bit. And how many, how many times do you get to experience death? I mean, <laughs> thousands. Thousands and thousands of times. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Take care, man. You too. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.